Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, everyone, to BAMS Radio, uh, this pre-SEC championship game edition, uh, live here at 7 o'clock from Huntsville, Alabama. I'm your co-host, Drew DeArmond, along with Thomas The Rock Watts, of course, from Mobile, Alabama. He's going to be also the, pro- the producer extraordinaire. We're going to have our third amigo here in a couple of minutes, William Redfish Barcher uh, from Hoover, Alabama, joining us, former Alabama offensive lineman, get his take on the SEC championship game and Lane Kiffin. Uh, as it looks like strongly that Lane's last game in the, for the Crimson Tide may very well be this Saturday uh, in the SEC championship game. He's had a great three-year run for the Crimson Tide, taking three different quarterbacks to the SEC title game, and now can he help the Alabama Crimson Tide win three in a row, which would be the first time since the salad days of Steve Spurrier and the Florida Gators. Alabama a huge favorite, around 24 points. I've already gone on record on my radio program, my daily radio show, Talking Ball, and I'll go on record here on BAMS tonight. I got Alabama winning this thing 31-10. to 10. Uh, The only, uh, you know, a small worry is, of course, the Lane Kiffin situation. Uh, but as we saw in the Iron Bowl last week, uh, for a half, Alabama was their own worst enemy, and I felt like uh, it was a little bit too much east-west and uh, too many speed sweeps. And then Lane Kiffin, uh, with the help of uh, – a couple of his friends on the football team at Alabama on the offensive side of the ball at halftime. They decide to go to more Bo Scarborough in between the tackles running, and they wear down the Auburn Tigers and win it 30-12. to Nick Saban's third straight win in that series, and he's now 7-3 and versus the Auburn Tigers. Alabama right now 12-0, and undefeated, and trying to sew up the number one overall seed in the college football playoff and a spot uh, in the December 31st Peach Bowl. Thomas, I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. I know we had a best of last week, but it's always good to be back live uh, with our listeners. It absolutely is, Drew. And uh, I want to address one quick thing before we get into the Iron Bowl discussion or the uh, talk of the SEC championship game, excuse me. And that is the recent controversy of who has Alabama beaten <laughs> and what is Alabama's best win. For fans that are not big Twitter listeners, there was a media member that posed the question, Heather Denich, the ESPN college football playoff and college football playoff reporter, she's excellent. She knows the CFP. I, I sometimes question some of her logic. And essentially, she, she brings up who is Alabama beaten. And here's really the problem that I had with it, Drew. And, and here, I, as I got annoyed with it, I realized, wait. I own a radio station, and I can talk about this on my radio station. So the, the premise of the argument is, who is Alabama beaten? As Alabama goes through their schedule and teams fall off a cliff, looking at you, Tennessee, looking at you, Texas A&M, looking at you, Ole Miss, Alabama should be punished at, for playing what was thought to be a strong schedule. It should be weakened, much like everybody else. Well, here's where the rubber hits the road on this whole point, Drew. It takes a simple open up a browser, open up a tab, and Google strength of schedule metrics. Mm 
Sagarin does them, Massey does them, ESPN does them, and all of them have Alabama ranked highly. So at this point, you have to ask, if this person is so eminently qualified, did she not do her due diligence? Is she lazy, or is she not as qualified as everyone seems to think? There's no real defense for what was said there, and that was really why the controversy got stirred up. And, okay, let's assume you don't check strength of schedule metrics. That isn't your thing for some reason. Every other metric I can find has Alabama in historically fantastic territory. I, I don't, I'm not even going to list them. You know, take a look at 538. Take a look at Football Outsiders. All the ones that you can go to for statistical analysis love this Alabama football team. So, and there's one final thing, and this is really what gets me. If your point is to attack the strength of schedule algorithms themselves, you are not qualified to do that. There are not many, there are not many college football fans who are qualified to do that. I am getting a doctorate in applied statistics, and I don't think I'm good enough to do that right now. So the whole situation got blown way out of proportion and way into the level of silly, quite frankly, Drew. And as, we, as it got obscured behind, oh, everyone's hating on Alabama, well, there just wasn't – like the, the point wasn't defensible. It wasn't a defensible point. It was an easily solvable question on your own. And so it, it turned into you know, you've got this fantastic analyst that resorted to what amounts to shock jockism. So which is it? Are you a shock jock or do you want me to take you seriously as an analyst? Because you know, Skip Bayless is a shock jock. I'm not going to him for hard-hitting analysis. Don't try and do both because you can't. It looks ridiculous. So, Drew, I know I just kind of stole our thunder for the first chunk of the show, but I've had to get, off, get that off my chest because I've watched it for two days, and it just blows my mind. Well, to be blunt with you, I've never been impressed with her and never will be. Um, sorry. I mean, I, I don't even really uh, respect a lot of her analysis. I think anybody could do it, uh, quite frankly, and it has nothing to do with her being a woman because I think the same thing about Danny Cannell and a lot of his whacked-out uh, logic, like if Alabama played uh, USC again, uh, I think it'd be a much better game. And, and trying to make a case for a three-loss team being in the playoff, quite frankly, I don't think Michigan is a two-loss team because they're not going to win their division. And I understand that Ohio State hasn't won theirs, but here's the difference. Ohio State beat Michigan on the field. I cannot help it that Michigan's lost two of their last four. A lot of times it's when you lose. Michigan is a good team. They probably should have beaten Ohio State, but they choked on applesauce, and so they did not. And so they're going to have to wait till next year. They're going to go to a nice bowl game, but they should not be in the mix. It should be the only other Big Ten team should be the winner of uh, Penn State and Wisconsin because it should carry weight uh, that you're the Big Ten champion. And I know what people are going to say, well, Michigan destroyed Penn State. Uh, Michigan uh, beat uh, Wisconsin. Yes, they did. But but you also lost later in the year, and then you lost to Iowa. Iowa, Iowa, Iowa. Not a very good football team. Not a great football team. So, to me, Michigan should be out of it. I think they will be. Yeah, I, I heard a re- ridiculously stupid argument today uh, from uh, Booger McFarlane who said if Washington wins a close game against Colorado that Michigan should jump over them and he's and he's he's paid to be an analyst and I like Booger he was a great football player at LSU and in the NFL borderline hall of famer but that is pathetic Colorado is a top 10 team 
who was uh, giving Michigan all they wanted until their starting quarterback went out. If 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 if, with, if, if Washington beats Colorado twenty-two to twenty-one, they should go to the playoff because they've only lost one game. They're the Pac-12 champions. I understand their schedule strength isn't all that great, but if you look at the metrics, neither is Michigan's. Okay, I'm sorry. If Michigan should not be in the playoff. They should be out of it. It should be if I think what's going to happen if everything holds, uh, you know, to form, it's going to be Alabama number 1, Clemson number 2, Ohio State 3, and then Washington 4 if they can win the Pac-12. But if they win the Pac-12, no matter the the the, uh, the margin, it doesn't have to be a blowout win over Colorado, then Michigan's just going to have to wait till next year. And then, of course, watch Najee Harris uh, being in Alabama uniform and hopefully get to run over their asses later on in his career. Well, you know, Drew, I, I was going to try and get Redfish, but I had to respond to this. And there, there's another part to this that you, we can talk about later. But I am not in the camp that thinks auto, uh, Ohio State is just an auto automatic lock because the, there's really a nightmare scenario here when it comes to the four teams that the uh, committee has to decide on Sunday. Is Ohio State's resume excellent? Absolutely. But it's going to be really tough to stomach that, let's say Penn State beats Wisconsin this, this coming Saturday. Penn State would win the Big Ten outright, be the Big Ten champion. You're going to tell me that the Big Ten champion, who is one of the hottest teams since that since that 39 point loss to Michigan, you know, on the way to through beating Ohio State, they beat Michigan State by 30, a team that just took Ohio State to the wire. You know, Penn State's just been crushing people left and right since they really, you know, sorted themselves out. You mean to tell me that that team is not going to get in when the Big Ten is the toughest division in football? I think that's kind of a stretch. I think that's kind of a crock. And the nightmare scenario is. At the end of the day, Clemson beats Virginia Tech. Clemson will almost certainly move ahead of Ohio State by factor of the conference championship because Ohio State's resume will be fairly close to Clemson's. But then you get into the conference championship tiebreaker. Then you have a question of three and four. Does Ohio State move behind even Washington because of the conference championship? How, how do conference championships add value there? I don't think Washington's resume is as strong but again, you're talking about you're talking about common opponents. If you know Washington comes out and just blasts Colorado, I could very easily see Ohio State getting knocked down to that four spot, and then you have a real problem because you know Penn State's going to move up to five because Wisconsin would drop out and Michigan will almost certainly move back because they are not playing. So now you've got Ohio State at four and and Penn State at five, and at that point you know, you're really going to find out in that room where people's loyalties lie. And what I mean by that is, quite simply, that the, you know, with these two teams, do you value conference championships a lot? Sure, it's built that it's only supposed to be a tiebreaker. But again, there, you have 12 people in a room, and everything that is given to these people, they're, they're more like guidelines. They're not rules. It's more on Kirby Hocutt, the commissioner, to come out and try and defend some of the lunacy that these people decide on. So I don't think it's an open and shut case, and there are going to be some really upset people should that scenario come to pass. At least I think so. But let me work on Redfish, and I'll pass it back to you. 
Yeah, Thomas, we'll see. I mean, I just think that overall what's going to end up hurting Penn State in the end is losing to Pitt, and I know Clemson did as well. Uh, but it's just about having that second loss. And uh, you can make an argument for Penn State because they beat Ohio State on the field. I understand that. But Ohio State's got a lot of impressive wins. I don't think they'll drop past the third spot. I don't think they'll drop them to fourth. Uh, I think because of Washington's schedule strength, they'll stay at four. But if they just win that game and hold serve, it's going to be an impressive win if they can beat Colorado, who uh, Coach Mike McIntyre has really uh, rebuilt uh, in his third season there. Uh, he's he's done a heck of a job uh, with at Colorado because – uh, Colorado had been down, you know, for so long. I mean, they they had not been a competitive program uh, nationally, and now to to be in the Pac-12 championship game, that is a huge, uh, you know, uh, 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 really a feather in his hat. And, I, and I'm actually kind of surprised uh, that he uh, that that uh, he hasn't gotten more buzz for other jobs. But uh, it's good for Colorado because hopefully. Uh, you know, under Bill McCartney in the early 90s and mid-90s, they were a powerhouse, and they fell on hard times, and it's good to see them uh, back up and then being uh, nationally uh, relevant again. And now we are going to go to the Sunbelt Tents hotline for our third amigo for uh, the rest of this hour. Uh, we're always uh, glad to be uh, joined by William Redfish Barger. William, hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, nice to have you back on BAMPS tonight. How are you doing, man? Man, I'm doing good, and, you know, when Thomas put me on hold, I heard you talking about, uh, you know, Colorado in the early 90s under Bill McCartney, and I, I can, I can mm-hmm. personally attest to this. Um, you know, that, that Colorado team that we played in 1991 in the Blockbuster Bowl, man, there Great were game. so many NFL guys that played on that team. Um, you know, specifically, you know, Chad Brown, uh, their oh, defensive yes. I mean, end, absolutely. who, you know, for a brief period was considered the best pass rusher in the NFL. You know, their two inside linebackers, Ted Johnston, who was a mainstay for Bill Belichick in the early part of the, the Patriots dynasty at inside linebacker. Uh, Craig Beaker, who played for the Oakland Raiders for a long time. Uh, just, you know, elite talent all over the field. And I agree with you, you know, what you said, Drew. It's you know, it's a it's 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 really uh, you know kind of an interesting discussion as to um, you know how Colorado football went down the tubes as fast as it did, but at the same time it's it's real interesting and and I think a positive for the game, uh, you know, watching what Mike McIntyre has done to bring back from the dead. Yeah, his uh, father George McIntyre, of course. Uh, coach at Vanderbilt uh, and uh, did an outstanding job there. And and Mike, I got a correction, is in his fourth season. And his defensive coordinator, William, is another familiar name to Alabama fans because this guy was in the mix of the Alabama head coaching job at one time, and that's Jim Levitt, who's kind of trying to resuscitate his career. Yeah, and, you know, on, on a personal level, Drew, uh, you know, when my father was, uh, you know, going to Vanderbilt in the early 80s, um, to get his divinity degree to be a, a preacher, um, I went to Vanderbilt's football camp in the fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. And uh, you know when George McIntyre was the uh, the coach at Vanderbilt, and and he had two sons, Mike and uh, Mark, and uh, you know they were heavily involved uh, with with that with the football camp and stuff. I got coached by by Mike McIntyre, um, you know as a ten you know, to a 12-year-old kid. And it's just kind of interesting to see, 
um, you know, how that game kind of runs in cycles and comes full circle. But, uh, you know, done a great job bringing that program back from the dead. But, you know, when you look at where they're they're situated from a geographic standpoint and for people that have never been to uh, Boulder and seen that campus, I mean, it's uh, – it's a destination campus. It's beautiful. Um, you know, they've had success, you know, in the past attracting good football players there. And, uh, you know, I, I you know, I've, I've kind of sat back in amazement watching the job that he's done out there. And, uh, you know, whether it's this year or next year, um, you know, he's a guy, depending on what college football jobs open up in the next two years, he's going to be at the top of the list. No question about that, William. And to kind of switch gears and continue the football narrative, uh, the Alabama Crimson Tide, 30-12 uh, to 12 winners in the Iron Bowl. It was a workmanlike performance. The first half wasn't great. Uh, felt like uh, they were kind of – they couldn't get out of their own way on offense. It was mainly just uh, just making mistakes and self-inflicted stuff. But uh, they really settled down in the second half. We continue to see the maturation of Bo Scarborough and what he's been able to accomplish uh, his last two games where he's been uh, uh, healthy, uh, he was healthy for most of the LSU game, or at least half of it, and then healthy for the Auburn game. He's really starting to come into his own, and this the identity of this team, I think, is starting to establish itself. This is a downhill running team. I know the, the speed sweeps are part of you know trying to fatigue these D-lines, but I think really what we're starting to see is with Jalen Hurts as a runner and then these, this three-headed monster at tailback, uh, this is a, this, this team that needs to be a downhill running team that kind of uh, throws the football uh, as they wear teams down. Yeah, and, you know, I think the uh, the first drive of the second half uh, Saturday, um, you know, when when you saw them line up, Bo in the pistol in the eye, um, you know, it was great to see it. He produced, and uh, you know that that opened up a lot of things for the offense, especially for Jalen Hurts at quarterback. You know, from a play standpoint, you know, going into that game, I thought the the key matchup um, on both sides of the ball was going to be Corin Curvin versus Montrevious Adams, and I thought Corin Curvin answered the bell um, in a big way. Um, you know, he was able to neutralize Montrevious Adams. I, I was never worried about you know either uh, Cam Robinson or Jonah Williams against Carl Lawson, but I, I was a little bit concerned. Um, you know, especially since the interior of that offensive line, I'm not talking about Bradley Bozeman, but both guard spots, you know, it's kind of been the Achilles heel of Alabama's offensive line. And I thought Corin Curvin did a great job Saturday um, against a guy in Montrevious Adams that could be a, you know, a late first round, you know, early second round draft pick. Yeah, I thought he did as well. I thought he took some major steps forward and, uh, and then uh, I thought they, uh, again, they, they, and then it was really uh, satisfying to see, and it, I know it had to be for you as well with this offensive line, uh, to see them run the last nine minutes off the clock in the fourth quarter uh, and just really uh, just to take the air out of the football and just uh, wear Auburn down completely and uh, put the game away. And, uh, and except for a, a small tweak of muscle pull, uh, which allowed a senior like Levi Wallace uh, to have the highlight of his career, Alabama seems to have come out of the game healthy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that, uh, you know, you kind of saw that, that offensive identity take another step forward, you know, against Auburn, especially in the second half. 
Um, you know, there were a lot of, you know, questionable play calls in my mind, um, you know, by Lane Kiffin in the first half. I thought there was way too much uh, trickeration and gimmicks um, when you've got the kind of offensive firepower that Alabama has. But I thought that, you know, that opening drive of the second half was kind of the, you know, the crown jewel of, of Alabama's offense for the season. And uh, you saw that offensive line imp- impose their will. Um, you know, you've seen this kind of play out through the course of the, of the season. You know, every week, uh, you know, going all the way back to the old Miss game when, when Jalen Hurts was named the starting quarterback, you know, you saw every week, you know, some – national analysts say, well, you know, this is the week that, you know, Alabama faces a defense that can shut down Jalen Hurts, a true freshman quarterback that makes a lot of mistakes, that struggles to throw the ball down the field. Um, you, know, you saw that play out against Old Miss. You saw it against Arkansas, Tennessee, Texas A&M, LSU, and then finally against Auburn on Saturday. You know, I think the, the defensive identity has never been in question all year. Um, but but I think that, that this Alabama offense, um, you know, despite mistakes, despite laying the ball on the ground, despite making interceptions, I think they've answered the bell every week. I think they have also. And, and then we saw, even though it was Chattanooga, we see, we see how important chemistry is and that our Darius Stewart is to the offense because uh, he came back against Auburn. He'd had an outstanding game with eight catches for 156 and three TDs against Mississippi State, and then another 10-catch performance against Auburn. He is, quite frankly, and Calvin Ridley is still a great player, uh, but he has almost become the heartbeat of the offense uh, because of his blocking in the running game and then his playmaking on the perimeter. Yeah, Drew, and I think that started last year in the second half against Tennessee. If you go back and you watch that last year, um, you know, when, when, when you saw the the uptick in Jake Coker's performance, um, you know, leading up to the SEC championship game and the playoffs, you know, that second half against Tennessee is when you really saw our Darius Stewart kind of start to assert himself. And, you know, I think he's a guy that, 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 that plays the position angry, um, you know, he, he completes his routes when he catches the ball. Um, there's always a ton of yards after contact when he catches it. Um, you know, he, he does a great job of blocking like he touched on. And, you know, w- what a great tool um, and a leader for, you know, a young, you know, true freshman quarterback like Jalen Hurts to have at his disposal. And, and like you said, um, you know, Calvin Ridley is good in his own right. And as we've gotten deeper into the season, you're starting to see more and more, um, you know, the big monster, Cam Sims, who's, you know, six four and a half, six five, uh, a big-bodied guy that's got some good speed to go with him. Um, you know, you've seen the, the, the grad transfer, Garrett Dieter, um, you know, kind of carve out a niche in his own right in that wide receiver rotation. And, uh, you know, I think that's just a a byproduct of, you know, this Nick Saban monster that you have that's been unleashed on college football. But I agree with what you said. You know, you cannot discount our Darius Stewart's role on this football team 
and I'll focus on one particular play um, Saturday against Auburn because I had so many people, uh, you know, blowing me up in September and October saying, well, you know, Blake Barnett's gone. He transferred. You know, we've got zero confidence in Cooper Bateman. You know, what would really happen if, uh, you know, Jalen Hurts gets hurt, you know, because they run him so much? You know, what would happen at the quarterback position? And, you know, my response was this. Uh, there's two guys involved uh, with that Alabama offense. If you don't have confidence in Cooper Bateman, which me personally I do, um, you know, but Ardarius Stewart was a great dual-threat quarterback himself in high school, as was Josh Jacobs. And, uh, you, you know, you saw that, you know, that, that trick play that they ran Saturday against Auburn where they flipped the ball to Ardarius Stewart and he completed that dart to O.J. Howard over there on Auburn's sideline. But there's your answer um, if something happens to Jalen Hurts. Put Ardarius Stewart at quarterback. Yeah, he was an outstanding quarterback at Fultondale High School, along with being a safety, and uh, he did make an outstanding throw. I thought it was a, uh, to O.J. Howard. As O.J. said after the game, they were hoping for a big play and a touchdown out of it, but it was pretty well defended by Auburn. It's still a good throw uh, from our Darius Stewart. And then I thought, once again, Jalen Hurts' poise comes into account. He didn't have the greatest uh, first half because of ball security problems and the two picks on some miscommunications, but – he never lets it get him, uh, uh, you know, phase him. or, or play. He's, He just continues to be unflappable. And I thought really the play of the game for him, William, was the fourth down throw to uh, O.J. Howe, I mean, excuse me, to Ardarius Stewart for the touchdown. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think that, that, you know, Alabama fans that are, you know, still on the fence about, you know, the value that Jalen Hurts brings to this team, Um. I think it was either yesterday. Yeah, it was yesterday uh, when Lars Anderson, uh, who's a great sports writer, um, you know, kind of profiled Jalen Hurts and had a great article on him. And, you know, a lot of that stuff that was in that article um, wasn't new news. I mean, you know, he talked about his background and, you know, being the coach's son. And, uh, you know, the thing that I really took away from, from the article was when they quoted Barrett Jones in it, who, who was very complimentary to Jalen Hurts as far as being, you know, a true freshman quarterback at a, you know, college football monster like Alabama. And, you know, this is a guy that, you know, performed at a high level at Alabama, you know, won the Remington Award, um, you know, has gone on to play in the NFL, but his body's failed him since he's gotten there. And I thought it was real interesting that in his, his opinion, you know, it's a much bigger jump to go from high school football at any level to playing at Alabama's level versus playing at Alabama and going on to the next level at the NFL. I thought that was huge. That is a very interesting point, uh, William, no doubt about it. And now uh, Alabama turns their focus uh, to uh, the Florida Gators and Jim McElwain and the big narrative going into the game. And we'll hear from Brent Beard later in this uh, podcast. I talked to him this afternoon on Talking Ball. Uh, is the long list of injuries for Florida. Coach McElwain taking some heat from the Gator fans because of, you know, they they lost to Tennessee and then did that streak and then lose to FSU. But overall, still getting this team 
uh, back to Atlanta for the second straight year uh, with still some instability at the quarterback position. Uh, I think they are a little bit better than they were last year, William, but the problem is I think this Alabama team is better than 2015, and uh, I don't think that's going to portend well for Florida come Saturday. Well, you know, I had an opportunity earlier in the week to listen to, uh, you know, a former uh, Florida quarterback, great Shane Matthews, on the radio. And he brought up some great points that, that I think, you know, file into this game and, and, and the, the Florida program in general. And, you know, that there's just something about the Jim McElwain marriage with Florida that just doesn't feel right. And, you know, I think he did a great job of trying to explain that. And, you know, he he, he kind of related it to, you know, hey, uh, you know, the Gator Nation is, is spoiled. Um, you know, they, they want to go back to the early 90s when Steve Spurrier was down there. And, you know, Shane Matthews was one of the quarterbacks where they threw the ball all over the place, scored a lot of points. And, uh you know, they, they thought, you know, after the Will Muschamp era that that's what they were going to get. Well, you've got to have a, a Shane Matthews or an, an Eric Zire, um, you know, to, to pull that off. But, you know, th- there just seems to be something amiss with that Jim McElwain-Florida relationship. And, you know, th- there's some other jobs out there that are open, um, and you know, he's done a good job of, um, you know, parlaying a, a strong defense um, for the last two years, getting them to Atlanta in, in the SEC championship game. But what, what those Florida fans really want to see is a prolific offense. And, you know, for that to happen, you have to have a prolific quarterback. And, you know, they may have had that in Will Greer, but, you know, you saw how he flamed out. Um, but I'll say this. The reason they've had such a strong defense for Jim McElwain's tenure, which is only two years, is because of Will Muschamp's recruiting. And they really haven't replicated that on a recruiting standpoint. And, you know, if an Oregon was to come calling with, with the amount of money and the resources that they have, um, I could maybe see Jim McElwain, who is a, uh, you know, a guy that, that grew up in Montana and cut his teeth in the coaching ranks on the West Coast. You know, if they offer Jim McElwain that job, I wouldn't be surprised to see him take it. Um, as, as far as their, you know, lineup this week against Alabama in the SEC championship game, they come into this game about as wounded as Tennessee was when Alabama went up to Knoxville back in the third Saturday of October. Um, You know, of course, there's all kinds of conspiracy theories out there. Should, you know, Nick Saban pull a Bill Belichick and, you know, rest his starters and and all that stuff? No, that's not going to happen. You know, there's way too many young football players um, on Alabama's team on both sides of the football. They, They need the reps. Um, they need the exposure against, uh, you know, quality football players, which Florida has. And, uh, you know, 
as far as the betting lines concerned, you know, 23, 24, 27 points, whichever way you want to slice and dice it, I view this game as a football coach would. Um, I don't care if you win it by 27 or you win it by a field goal. You go to Atlanta, you put your team um, into a championship environment, um, which they're going to be against Florida Saturday in the Georgia Dome. You you take care of business, and then guess what's going to happen? Nick Saban and that coaching staff is going to go take a week and and make in-home visits. The players are going to be given a week off to study for for, uh, final exams. And uh, then you regroup after that, and then you start getting ready for the playoffs. But to answer your question, um, I think this is a walking wounded Florida Gator football team that you're going to see Alabama match up against on Saturday in Atlanta. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really a, a banged up football team. The only one thing that they've been able to is, is uh, the, it looks like he'll be able to play. I don't know how effective he'll be now. He was playing basically with one arm and did an outstanding job against Georgia, but and he was outstanding against Alabama last year. Also, is Gerard Davis looks like the Butkus finalist will be in the lineup, so that will help Florida out as well. And I like their two backs. Scarlett runs hard, and, and P Ryan, but. As we've seen, William, nobody has been able to run the football uh, on this Alabama defense, and I don't expect Florida to be able to do a lot of damage Saturday. No, I mean, I, I think you're talking about a uh, an elite unit um, that takes a lot of pride in doing what they do well. Um, you know, whether it's shutting down the run or, you know, bringing in uh, Tim Williams and Ryan Anderson, you know, coming off the edges and rushing the passer. Um, you know, those guys, you know, we've all seen the explanation about what it means to be a dog, um, you know, in that in that program and, and, and it, on that defense. Um, it, it is, on paper at least, a mismatch. Now, you know, could they keep it close? I thought they kept it closer last year um, than, than what it looked like on paper. But, you know, I, I do think that this is a uh, – a great opportunity for Alabama to go out there and make a statement. Um, you know, there's a lot of people out there that don't think that, you know, Alabama has played anybody this year. Um, if you look at the strength of schedules um, and how they're laid out right now going into this weekend, um, they disagree with that. Alabama's got the strongest strength of schedule of any of the, the so-called playoff teams uh, going into this weekend, and I'm talking about Ohio State, Clemson, and, and, and Washington. So, you know, you go out there, you take care of business. You know, if the game gets out of hand in the second half, um, you know, you pull your starters, you put the young guys in, and, um, you know, let let the, the chips fall where they may. But, you know, all these people that are saying, uh, you know, Nick Saban should rest his starters, you know, this isn't the NFL. That's not how things work, especially when you have the number of young players, um, you know, just on offense, Jalen Hurts, Jonah Williams, Josh Jacobs, uh, that are true freshmen and are, you know, still feeling their way through college football. You just can't afford to do that. 
Absolutely, William. Uh, uh, agreed. And, and so uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. And I guess the next uh, topic has to be Lane Kiffin. Uh, there's a lot of speculation now about him. I'm not surprised at all that he's in the mix uh, at Houston for the head coaching job. I always said that would be a good fit if Tom Herman moved on uh, because it's a non-Power 5 job that he could uh, work himself uh, you know, back up and get another head coaching opportunity. Also, his name coming up at Oregon, though, I kind of doubt him ending up out there. You talked about Coach McElwain. He is denied interest in the Oregon job, but I agree with you. Something kind of seems amiss. Uh, at Florida, he would be with his Northwest roots. I think a really good fit at Oregon. We'll see if something happens with that after the SEC championship game. But talk about Lane Kiffin. I'm hearing strongly that this will be his last game uh, at, at Alabama uh, coming Saturday, and he won't be with the team through the playoff. But I know you're connected as well. Can you add some clarity to the situation? Drew, I would be totally surprised if come Sunday. Uh, that Lane Kiffin is not a part of the Alabama football program anymore. I'm not saying that what you just told me um, is not something that's possible, but I, I think that, you know, look, it's obvious, you know, we all know that Lane Kiffin's not going to be the offensive coordinator at Alabama in 2017, but, you know, I think it will play out um, – much in the same way as, as Kirby Smart, you know, getting the, the Georgia job last year. Um, you know, first of all, if, if let's just say that, you know, what you just told me comes true, Lane Kiffin still has the month of uh, December, January, and February left on his contract. So, you know, they would have to pay him that unless he just walked away voluntarily. Um, could it happen? Could, you know, could Sunday be or Saturday be his last game? You know, I'm not dumb enough to say that it, that that's not possible. I would just be surprised that it plays out that way. Um, you know, I understand the dynamic of, of having Steve Sarkeesian on the staff and, you know, maybe it being a, a seamless transition. But, I, you know, Nick Saban is an old school guy. Um, he doesn't like change in, in, in certain instances. Um, you know, Lane Kiffin has not been really involved in recruiting in the three years that he's been at Alabama. So if he doesn't get the Oregon head coaching job, if he doesn't get the Houston job, um, he's got a $1.8 to a $2 million fallback plan in place at LSU with an Ogeron, which, you know, we, we should all be so fortunate to have that kind of backup plan in, in our careers. But uh, but I just don't see it playing out that way. Um, I, I still think that, you know, he, he could be named on Monday morning at, at 10 a.m. Uh, the, the LSU offensive coordinator. But what would really that – impact for Alabama or LSU. Um, you know, he, the, the really the only two recruits that he's involved with on a minor level for Alabama are, you know, the, the Hawaiian quarterback to Najee Harris. And I, I just don't see that being an issue. Um, I don't think either one of those guys 
um, are, are coming to Alabama because of Lane Kiffin. Um, you know, I think that, that Tua is, is much more tied to Tosh Lapoy and Nick Saban. Um, I think Najee Harris is more attracted to, um, you know, coming to Alabama and doing what a lot of people thought Leonard Fournette would do at LSU and having an opportunity with an elite offensive line at being – you know, the best high school prospect in the country that matriculates to college football and being the best running back prospect since Adrian Peterson, you know, coming out of high school. Um, So so what I'm trying to say is, you know, let's just say that, you know, the rumors are true and, and, you you know, Lane, you know, leaves Saturday night on his way back from the Georgia Dome. I, I, number one, I just don't see that happening. Uh, number two, I don't think Nick Saban would let that happen. But I'm not dumb enough to say that that scenario is not possible. We have some recruiting news as well. Uh, it's been speculated since uh, you know he didn't commit on Tuesday, uh, but uh, Thomas uh, just uh, hit us up in the back chat and. It, I had been checking Twitter today. I knew it was possible it would happen, but looks like Baron Browning has fallen for Urban Meyer's uh, uh, pitch, and also with the help of Kendall Sheffield's esteemed family, uh, and of course Kendall being on his official visit as well at the same time to the Ohio State University. But uh, Baron Browning from Kendall, Texas, looks like he is committed uh, to the Ohio State Buckeyes via his Twitter account. It'll be interesting. Uh, I know Nick Saban talked with Floyd went to see him this week. Was uh, Nick Saban was scheduled to have an in-home with him after the SEC championship game. Uh, that could still easily happen, though he's committed. But very interesting uh, that Baron Browning uh, goes to Ohio State, though not a, a big shock at this point, William. Well, you know, and this is not going to be a popular opinion for Alabama fans. But right. if you really look at this from – you, know, you may see this happen – next week with the five-star offensive tackle, Trey Smith. Um, You know, as an Alabama fan, you know, I look at things in a certain light, but at the same time I try and put myself in that 18-year-old kid's body and his parents, you know, situation about what's best for them. And I, I personally think that both Baron Browning and, you know, if Trey Smith, you know, the five-star offensive tackle, um, decides to not join his sister at, in Knoxville at Tennessee, and he goes to Ohio State where he's leaning, you know, I think both of those kids are making very well-informed decisions for themselves. Um, you know, in Trey Smith's situation, um, if he chooses to go to Ohio State, you know, this is going to be a name that's very familiar to Alabama fans. Um, a guy that Nick Saban turned away numerous times two years ago, Isaiah Prince, who is the starting right tackle for Ohio State. Um, he has been a – I'm trying to think of a politically correct way of saying Well, he's, a, he's been a late-term abortion um, for Ohio State this year. Um, you know, there's a chance that Trey Smith could go to Ohio State and take over that right tackle spot from day one next year. 
I'm not saying he couldn't do the same thing at Alabama, but unlike Ohio State, he's got two five-star guys in Alex Leatherwood, Elliot Baker, and another guy in Matt Womack um, that would have a say in that position battle. If you, like me, think that Jonah Williams is going to left tackle the minute that Cam Robinson leaves. Um, as far as, you know, Browning's concerned, um, I, I feel the same way. I mean, you know, if he comes to Alabama, you know, if you really want to look at something that's elite, lay the last two classes, and I'm talking about last year's class and this year's class, um, as far as Alabama's linebackers' classes are concerned, Lay that stuff out on paper and start looking at Mac Wilson, Ben Davis, Terrell Hall, Dylan Moses, Vandarius Cowan, who I think is the same player as Barrett Browning. Lay all that stuff out on paper. And then, you know, look, we all want to see, you know, Browning come to Alabama. But at the end of the day, um, there's a much, you know, less – deeper depth chart at Ohio State. Um, you know, I think we've talked about this, Drew. There's a better better chance than not that Anthony Jennings is going to slide in a defensive end. Terrell Hall, who is a guy that, you know, Alabama fans don't want to talk about this, but Terrell Hall was committed to Ohio State at one point last year. And Nick Saban flipped him. That's going to be your jack linebacker next year. Um, at at six five, you know, two forty six, um, you know, they're, they're you know you can't sign every elite player every year, and at the end of the day, the way Nick Saban and, and that process works, it's it's not for everybody. There's easier places you can go and make your living as a college football player and get to the NFL. And I, I don't think Alabama fans fully understand that. So, you know, if you're asking me about, you know, recruiting updates and, you know, what there is to talk about it, uh, Trey Smith should go to Ohio State. Uh, Baron Browning should go to Ohio State. It's an easier path with less bumps in the roads than what both of those kids would face if they chose to come to Alabama. Well, and, and honestly, I know it increased at Baron Browning, and it looked like he was going to commit to him Tuesday until uh, the fallout from the visit. And, of course, you find out about the Sheffield angle. But uh, I honestly, until that point, had never thought Baron Browning would come to Alabama anyway because of what you said, William, uh, because of the Dylan Moses and the and the Vandarius Cowan and, and uh, Mark Elbin. And to clarify more, uh, uh, recruiting uh, uh uh, talk. I know there was a tweet today by Dylan Moses about decisions, decisions, but uh, from what you and I have been able to gather, he was referring to other prospects and not himself, uh, and I think some people kind of ran with that, just like uh, this Rashawn Evans tweet from earlier in the week when many people had him transferring from the university, and uh, he's, of course, out at practice. Sometimes uh, I think people overanalyze and overreact to the Twitter sphere. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, on one hand, Drew, I, I get what you're saying. And on the other hand, um, 
you know, social media is, is a, a good thing in my opinion. You know, on the other hand, I think what it's going to do in, in the next couple of years is destroy uh, websites because, you know, that's what people used to pay for websites is, you know, they wanted to pay for the opportunity to get inside information um, and kids that were, you know, dropping commitments. And, you know, these kids are doing it now on, on social media. And, you know, as far as Dylan Moses is concerned, you know, look, the guy the guy was committed to LSU for three years. Uh, there was a coaching change. Um, you know, you saw the same pictures that I did with him and Najee Harris and him and Vandarius Cowan. Um, you know, Dylan Moses is a interesting study. Um, you know, he's an elite athlete that I just really can't put in a specific position in a Nick Saban defense. I mean, I've, I've looked at him as a Reuben Foster inside linebacker, and he's not that. Uh, I tried to put him in as a Courtney Upshaw Jack linebacker, and he's not that. So um, if he stays, you know, hell, I'll take his fifth star and, and, and crow about it. But, you know, at the same time, um, you know, Alabama has got, if you really want to break it down and look at this recruiting class, and this is without, you know, the, the other six or seven guys that they're going to add to this class. They've got their number one offensive line class, the number one running back class with Najee Harris and Brian Robinson, the number one quarterback class with Tua and Mac Jones, uh, flip over to the other side of the ball, and they've got their number one linebacker class with or without uh, Baron Browning. So they're, they're going to keep rocking and rolling and moving forward. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to discount, you know, these kids that, you know, Urban Myers is winning some recruiting battles against with Nick Saban. But don't make any mistake, Alabama has very, very good players waiting in the wings to do the exact same thing for Alabama that Urban Meyer is selling these kids on if they can do it at Ohio State. You know, and um, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Doc. Go ahead. And I was just going to say, and another thing, too, you brought up the last few commitments and Alabama being in the mix for kids, and especially the Daniel Wrights uh, at safety and, and, and D'Angelo Gibbs and of that ilk. There's not a lot of spots left. And as you've even said, uh, a guy that was thought to be in the class and still might be, not saying he won't, but. Someone like Devontae Smith uh, with Henry Ruggs and his uh, ever-expanding profile and rising stock. Alabama definitely wants Ruggs. It could be that they have to make a business decision and and, uh, someone like Devontae Smith won't be in the class because of all the talented players and the need for defensive line. Well, and I think you just, you know, told the whole story, Drew. Um, Do do, do they save a spot for a guy like Devontae Smith or, or Nico Collins? Or do they take that spot, especially if Ruggs commits and, and, you know, you go status quo there? Um, You know, two years ago, Alabama was in a position to load up on defensive linemen, and they didn't do it. And so they've kind of got themselves behind the eight ball um, for the last two years because of that. And I think they've gotten themselves 
right back into the race where, you know, they're in a situation where they can grab a, you know, a, a Mathis, a Ken Law, um, maybe even an Isaiah Bugs from junior college, maybe an Aubrey Solomon. Um, but that's where the focus needs to be. So, you know, people look at stars and, and, you know, how the class is ranked and all that stuff. But, you know, recruiting, there, there's one constant in college football recruiting, and it's a needs basis. And what Alabama needs in this recruiting class is four to five, six, seven, if they can get them all, defensive linemen. And that's where a guy like, you know, somebody up there in your neck of the woods, LeBron Ray, uh, going down to Louisiana, uh, Mathis, uh, you know, going over to to, uh, the JUCO ranks, Isaiah Bugs, you know, they might even, you know, come back with uh, uh, Ken Law um, and then Connolly from, from Virginia. There's so many parts of this puzzle that are in, you know, moving around. And, you know, I, what I would tell Alabama fans is this. Um, if you want to see how this class is going to finish, sit back, relax, and wait and see what the coaching staff does from January 1st till the first Wednesday in February. Because I think that's Absolutely. when, Drew, you're going to see a lot of movement. Because this mm-hmm. this is a critical year for them to get guys at that position, and that's the defensive line. Yeah, they, they've got to uh, have a great defensive line pass, but as you went over, they are in strong position with several prospects. It looks like that will be the case, but uh, that's going to be a big part of the numbers going down the stretch, though we could have a couple of gray shirts uh, that are currently committed, and there might be some attrition, but regardless, it's going to be a very strong group. I think at the very least, the number two group behind Ohio State, but still with an outstanding chance to have the number one overall class. And to, I will say this, once he's enrolled early, if you get not, once you get Najee Harris on campus and keep, you've kept him away from the Michigans and the Ohio State, I know Alabama's got a very solid backfield right now, but as I've said repeatedly, this kid is a transcendent talent. You talked about it earlier in the program, William, that you compared him to Adrian Peterson. That's what everybody is saying. He's the best high school running back to come down the pipe in many a moon. And I know you've told me on more than one occasion uh, on this show and on my uh, daily radio program, Talking Ball, uh, that he, you think he can win a Heisman Trophy at Alabama. Jerry, I'll tell you this. Um, I, I, I don't know running backs and quarterbacks and wide receivers because I've never played that position at any level of football. But I know big people. Alabama, it's it's ridiculous the amount of, you know, four- and five-star uh, big people that they've got lined up in the last two recruiting classes to get this done with. But, you know, the easiest selling point for Najee Harris is, you know, hey, have you met Jonah Williams? Have you met Alex Leatherwood? Have you met Jedrick Wills? But I totally agree with what you just said. Najee Harris is a transcendent talent. He is the, you know, not just with Alabama, I'm talking about with any 
college football program. He is the best high school running back that I have seen come out of the high school ranks since Adrian Peterson. And that is a mouthful because we know Adrian had a huge impact at Oklahoma. That was really his most healthy season. He finished second in the Heisman Trophy voting that year, uh, went on, and now has having a Hall of Fame career uh, with the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, he's trying to bounce back from a knee injury now. But Najee has an unbelievable work ethic, an unbelievable focus. He doesn't get into all the Twitter and the uh, talking to the media and things like that. He's a one-track-minded individual, also a very good student, and uh, looking forward to hopefully having him uh, enroll early and should uh, as he's coming off his official visit. We will see if the visit to Michigan happens uh, for Najee Harris. But I know Alabama feeling very good right now with Tosh Poi and the job he has done recruiting the young man, also Nick Saban. Uh, and, uh, and again, Najee spending a, a week this summer with his coaching staff in Tuscaloosa and uh, really uh, bonding with the coaching staff. And I think that's gone a long way. And, of course, uh, the coaching staff and especially Nick Saban's relationship with uh, Tiana Hicks, the mother of Najee Harris, who has stated this week she may very well be moving to Tuscaloosa, uh, which is a great sign uh, for great the point. University of Alabama. Yeah, I mean, and so that's just a great a great job by Tosh Poi, who it was also recruiting Baron Browning, uh, but you can't win them all. And as you said, William, Alabama already in very good shape at linebacker, got a lot of good young talent there. Uh, and really the biggest, uh, the biggest thing is, even whether they take Devonta Smith or not, you've got to get the offensive line and got to get a couple more uh, decent young DBs, and then Alabama will be where they need to be from a number standpoint in talent because Nick Saban is always going to build this team from inside out. Uh, and who knows, maybe you could trade a Devonta Smith for an Aubrey Solomon. Uh, I know Georgia has been thought to be in the driver's seat, but I know he had a blowout visit to Alabama. And when you see uh, all these first and second round draft picks, uh, William, and the way this defense is played, uh, this is a special defense, and I just want them to finish the drill, and I want them to take care of Florida and give themselves an opportunity to become the first team to go 15-0. It would be a very special accomplishment. Well, you know, Drew, I think what you should remember, and, you know, this comes from a guy that's, you know, failed at one big job at Florida, and now he's got another chance at South Carolina. But Will Muschamp, in my opinion, you know, put this thing into perspective for everybody. You know, he was the first guy, even this was back when he was the uh, D.C. at Texas. And, you know, they asked him about, you know, what what are you successful at? You know, what are you good at? And he said, you know, listen, if you want to know what's good about the Southeastern Conference, it's a line of scrimmage league. And if you want to win it, You've got to be better than everybody that you play on both sides of the ball. And what has Nick Saban done since 2008? He's won both sides of the line of scrimmage. And that's why I think that, you know, Najee Harris is attracted to coming to Alabama. I mean, you know, we could we could probably sit around with crayons, Drew, and draw up uh, Derrick Henry's Heisman Trophy campaign and send it to you know Najee Harris. Um, you know, there's Jalen Hurts, uh, there's Josh Jacobs, there's Damian Harris, 
you know, I think the thing that really strikes me about this team more so than anything is the way they perform, how they handle their business. And, you know, whether it's Nick Saban, Lane Kiffin, Jeremy Pruitt, whoever, they go out every week, they conduct their business, and everybody gets beat. Great point, William. Uh, Well, we appreciate it, man. It's been a great conversation for this last 45 minutes or so of BAMS Radio. Uh, We really uh, enjoyed the insight into the Colorado program, and as Thomas said, Earlier in the hour via the back chat, don't don't forget also the Heisman Trophy winner, Rashawn Salam, uh, who came out of Colorado. A lot of great players out of there. And then, of course, rehashing uh, the uh, the third straight victory in the Iron Bowl over Auburn. And then what should be uh, Alabama's 26th SEC title coming up against a beat-up Florida squad. Still have to take care of business, have a lot of respect for Jim McElwain, uh, but the football team gonna have to take uh, going to have to go out and play well. Lane Kiffin, we'll see what happens with him, whether he leaves, regardless whether it's after the Florida game or in, at the end, you know, at the end, uh, in middle January, uh, it, it, you're, we, are, we are in agreement. He is uh, going to move on from the University of Alabama. It will be interesting to see what happens uh, with this opportunity at the University of Houston or uh, at, with LSU. But regardless, he's done a heck of a job on the field coaching for Alabama. Three different QBs trying to win three straight SEC titles and a couple of national championships back-to-back, and what would really help his resume and help him uh, continue to rebuild his career. And then we'd see likely Steve Sarkeesian trying to take the baton from him and continue to rise back up. But always appreciate it. Thank you, sir, and uh, we'll talk with you next week, man. Thank you, Derek. Thank you. That's William Redfish Barger. We're going to take our five-minute break. Thomas The Rock Watts and I will be back uh, coming out of the break We're going to bring you a conversation I had with Brent Beard. He's going to take a closer look in breaking down this matchup with the Florida Gators. He does an outstanding job covering them uh, for Gator Bait Magazine, uh, the Clay Sun and College Football, or the CollegeSportsNotebook.com, pardon me. Uh, He's also a a, uh, anchor on uh, First Coast News, a contributor to their their, their newscast as as a college football analyst on television and on the radio on my program, 1010 XL Sports Radio in Jacksonville and many throughout the Southeast. Been covering the Gators for a long time, and I think you'll enjoy that conversation. But stay with us. We'll be back in about five minutes. Rolling down a backwoods, Tennessee byway. One arm on the wheel. Holding my lover with the other, a sweet, soft, southern thrill. Worked hard all week, got a little jingle on a Tennessee Saturday night. Couldn't feel better, I'm together with my Dixieland tonight. Spend my dollar, park in a holler, need the mountain moonlight. Hold her up tight, make a little loving, a little turn it up and on a Mason Dixon night. It's my life, oh, so right. 
Radio. Second hour, hour number two of our Thursday night program. Well, luckily, we do not have to ban Dixland Delight on this program because, well, if you want to say the somewhat crass parts of the song to yourself as you're listening, I'm not going to stop you, put it to you like that. We had a great first hour conversation with William Redfish Barger. This is Thomas Watts. Drew has stepped away real quick, so I figured I'd pick it up real fast. Great first hour conversation with William Redfish Barger. Hour number two, we're going to have a visit with Ryan Fowler a little bit later on, but we've also got some audio from Brent Beard and Avery Johnson. So there's going to be a uh, going to be a pretty interesting show. We won't pivot to basketball until near the end because we do have to talk a little bit of the Florida Gators side of things. But with Drew gone and us on a fairly tight timetable. I'm going to go on and start the Brent Beard audio. It's about 20, 25 minutes. He's, a, he's going to give us a perspective, a look at uh, the Gators from a, a guy that covers the Florida Gators. So here we go. Brent, I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. How are you? I did. Uh, we're uh, going to be welcoming some cooler weather, too, heading to Atlanta tomorrow to cover the game. So excited about that. Um, uh, but I'm doing well in, in uh 
Drew, I, I want to mention real quick, I did a, an article I sent in today uh, that, that I kind of do it on the state of Florida for football, and I'll, I'll make this very quickly, But and I know we'll talk a lot of Florida, Alabama, but, but certainly Florida State deserving of several awards that they got with DeAndre Francois, the freshman of the year, and then Demarcus Walker from Jacksonville, the defensive player of the year, uh, and then with um, – um, Miami, Brad Kaya breaking Ken Dorsey's record now as a career passing leader at Miami with all those quarterbacks that they have had and Central Florida going to a bowl, uh, Shaquem Griffin getting uh, the Defensive Player of the Year in the American Athletic Association. And finally, with South Florida, Willie Taggart's name being mentioned a little bit in the Oregon job, but they broke the top 25 themselves. This Quentin Flowers kid and quarterback and Dalvin Cook, I think both those guys, Cook being from FSU, ought to be uh, given some maybe some Heisman consideration. But the bottom line is, Drew, when you really take a look at the state of Florida, now with Butch Jones going to FIU, uh, the, um, the, the future is pretty bright in this state uh, as far as the next few years are concerned for the colleges here. Uh, absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt. It's always been a ta- talent-laden state, and it took Willie Taggart a couple of years, but much like he did with Western Kentucky, uh, he's laid a solid foundation there uh, at South Florida, and it'll be interesting to see if his name does continue to come up at other places uh, and other jobs. Lane Kiffin has been a big uh, part of the conversation uh, since uh, the Iron Bowl, Brent. Uh, it was a, a first half of missed opportunities for Alabama, uh, but a much better second half. Uh, thought and uh, I guess uh, what I, I was more encouraged with is Alabama finally ran the ball between the tackles uh, with Bo Scarborough, who I know he was out of the lineup for Chattanooga and Mississippi State, but hit the last two times we've seen Bo uh, has been his best performances of the year. Well, there's no doubt about that. And, and when Bama's in their downhill running game, uh, that that's when they really play the best. Um, uh, Kiffin gets wedded to this. Uh, uh, West Coast offense where he wants to do a lot of uh, the, the, the bubble screens and going laterally. Look, the reality is with the defense that Bama's played, the LSU uh, and Auburn, uh, you're not – and look, even to a degree, Chattanooga, uh, what the, because Chattanooga on their own division does very well, that the uh, going laterally is not going to work with these teams. They're too quick. You're only going to get so much from it. And, and, frankly, the second half was really truly when Alabama is, is their strength. Well, they could go north and south uh, with Harris and Scarborough and, and also thought Josh Jacobs really had a tremendous game in the second half. They took, the uh, to me, the burden off of Jalen Hurts, and they were able to distribute the ball to the playmakers. And, and frankly, Drew, when you do that, Alabama is uh, almost unbeatable, and the question's going to be is when are they going to put two halves together like that or at least call two halves like that instead of uh, finally figuring out in the second half this is what we do best. Yeah, exactly, and uh, and, and it'll be interesting to see how they attack Florida because this, uh, this is still a proud Gator defense, yep. and I guess the first narrative we need to approach is the injury report because it's a lengthy one for Jim McElwain. Yeah, we really don't have enough time to go into it uh, uh, because it is so empty. And Jordan Sherritt, 
was the latest uh, to, to, to go out, uh, and that happened in the FSU game, so that further depletes them along the line. Now, the, the thing that people need to, to know is if Jared Davis can play, this kid will make a difference. So Jared Davis is an all-SEC linebacker. If, if he can get in there, that will be a huge difference for them. If Brian Cox can play the defensive end, he also can wreak some havoc. Uh, the other kid that has really come on, uh, I say kid, uh, but literally because he's um, uh, one of the younger players has played well, is Mortez Ivy on the offensive line, who has really done a nice job. Uh, and, and that's something you look at. Duke Dawson, if he can play, that would be huge. He's got an ankle injury. So the bottom line is, Drew, they, they've got – uh, they're losing a lot of guys, but they may get some of these guys back even for 10 to 20 plays might be able to make a difference. But uh, there's no doubt. I, I, I think we'll see the, the Florida that beat LSU more than we'll see the Florida that, that just got drummed by Arkansas and by Florida State because you're right. I, I mean, look, they're playing for championships that so they don't want to stake. And this team has a lot, a lot better players than some people realize. And uh, of course, Gerard Davis and uh, Cox were uh, forces last year against Alabama. Right. But from what I was hearing recent, as recently as yesterday, it sounded like Cox was doubtful, uh, and uh, Duke Dawson would be doubtful. But that, uh, that they considered Davis probable. Yeah, and that's kind of where we are at this point. But again, we're still a couple of days away. And those guys may be able to play. And, and the reason I say uh, limitless—I I mean, if they—if some of these guys drew are able to play ten to twenty plays, it would make a difference. Mm-hmm. So then, uh, and, and again, particularly with Jar Davis, the guy that—and I can tell you right now—if Florida had Cameron Dillard, the center, uh, who is out with a knee injury, and Alex Anzalone, who has a broken arm, and Marcus May, who has a broken arm linebacker and safety respectfully the, uh, I'm not saying Florida would win and I'm not saying it would be a drastically different game but that would have been a huge shot in the arm for the Gators if those guys were available mm-hmm. and then uh, we're, as far as uh, uh, that part of the injury report we know where we are there but uh, is Luke Del Rio even available or is this going to be Applebee's game Yeah, it, it's Applebee's game uh, I think you had a uh, and look, in the Florida State game, as McElwain said, uh, Appleby's going. Del Rio would come in uh, in case Appleby lost his helmet. That's <laughs> <laughs> how you put it. Uh, but he said if we needed anything long-term, Felipe Franks would have come in. That, that, mm. Through the mistake that they made was they had a chance in the South Carolina game to pull the red shirt off of Felipe Franks who is a true freshman, he's about six foot six. he's from Wakula, who is a, uh, a powerhouse here in the state of Florida. Kid, all, kid not only played quarterback in high school, but he, he also kicked off for them, if you can imagine that. So um, if they would have played him and gotten him some experience, that would, that would have been huge. But unless uh, you've got a situation where Appleby is just totally uh, ineffective or ineffective or he gets hurt, uh, I think he'll, I think you'll see him for most of the game. And so uh, now the narrative is also uh, with Coach McElwain, 
Uh, they've had all kind of trouble. They didn't. Have, they did not play well against a Florida State defense last week. Uh, Brent that has uh, not lived up to expectations. This Alabama unit has been suffocating. Uh, the question is, and Auburn found the sledding very tough. They tried to play Cameron Petway. He wasn't 100%. He got completely shut down. The Auburn running game got completely shut down. I know Jordan Scala has run hard. I like P. Ryan. Can they run the ball at all against Alabama? Uh, I, I, I don't think they'll have very many more better results than they did, frankly, uh, Drew, but the reality is, uh, and I mentioned this last night on First Coast News, I think they've got to have a situation where they continue uh, offensively to run the ball. Now, now um, Jordan Scarlett is a pretty good running back that a lot of people don't know about, and he finally became their uh, their main guy uh, to the middle and the end of the season. He averaged about five yards a carry. Now, again, their offensive line still is beat up to the point where Alabama – will end up dominating that. But, see, their problem was, Drew, they were 0 for 12 on third down against FSU. Mm. You talk about futility. So the thing that would work for them would be if they are able to shorten the game and if they could get any kind of positive yards. And, see, this is what what Gary Danielson talked about in the LSU game against Alabama is what they what Florida needs to do is be patient and go for just some positive yards. Uh, in other words, if you can get three, two, three, three, and then you've got third and four. In that situation, uh, you may have a little bit of success because Florida's got a couple of good tight ends who can catch the ball, Andrew Goolsby and uh, Seontay Lewis. So I think you, you take a chance to throw it to them a little bit, that, the Florida banks can be able to catch the ball. So I think what I'm saying is Florida is very limited, obviously, offensively. But at the same time, Drew, I think there's things they could do to at least keep them in the game longer. Do you think, in effect, because I know Coach Mack likes to do this with his team, he did it quite effectively with Alabama, that he will look to uh, the screen game to kind of uh, be an extended handoff to try to get on the perimeter and uh, be sort of like a running game. Yeah, I think you could see that. Uh, and, and Jordan Scarlett can catch the ball. Um, they would, uh, and I think they would be fine with that. Now, the reality is, they, I mean, they've got some decent playmakers uh, all the way around. It's just, it's just the fact of can they get the ball uh, in their hands uh, is Antonio Callaway is is their best threat. He he returned the punt for a touchdown mm-hmm. last year. Now C.J. Wharton and Chris Thompson have done very little at uh, a wide receiver. The guy Bama needs to be careful about is Tyree Cleveland, who is a true freshman out of uh, Texas. Now, he has been mm-hmm. very good at times this year. Brandon Powell is uh, is uh, number four. Uh, he is uh, not very big at all, but this, that's the kind of guy, Drew, that you try to get lined up on a linebacker with a little slant pass over the middle and let him be able to use his speed. But the reality of it is uh, uh, Florida has so few playmakers that it's going to be pretty easy for Bama to be able to probably double uh, Antonio Callaway and also the Cleveland kid when they come out wide. 
Well, and the one thing I will say that's also different from last year is even uh, when the Gators could move the ball, they were not confident in their kicking game. Much different. Uh, they were very solid at punter with Lawrence. And then, of course, yeah. Eddie Pinheiro uh, has added some stability there. Yeah. Well, listen, there's no doubt about that. I mean, even – now, Drew, uh, and I'm sure your listening audience will remember this, but even as bad as Florida was last year uh, with Treon Harris, who you and I and whoever's in the studio would have been a better quarterback, that uh, that was still a one-possession game in the third quarter. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and there were times that uh, if you, when you watched the replay of the game, Drew Florida had some guys wide open. They just couldn't hit them. So, I mean, the play calling was probably better than that. They'd been given some credit for that. But that, listen, in the in the the kicking game is infinitely better. Eddie Panera um, can hit from fifty yards on a regular basis, and that was a former Alabama commit. And, and frankly, Johnny Townsend, the, 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 he and J.K. Scott. Oh, pardon me, Townsend. I'm, I apologize. Yes. Uh, uh, no problem. But they, but 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 the reality is, Drew, as you know, that's your two best punters in the league. And also with the um, that dome is is a wonderful thing for kickers. So we could see some uh, 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 some field goals and some punts go a lot longer than they normally would. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then, uh, Matt, then we turn to the other side of the ball. This LSU, uh, or excuse me, when Florida was able to uh, defeat LSU to clinch the division, uh, they were without about six starters on defense that day. They still competed very well against a talented uh, LSU uh, football team. LSU was sloppy with the ball. Uh, in your mind, you've watched Alabama quite a bit. You've seen the Gators uh, with what we could see on the field because we don't know the entirety of the uh, the injury report yet, and uh, if, if, as you said, some will give them 10 to 20 plays, but do you see them, how do you see them matching up against this Alabama offense? Well, well the, uh, I, I think the, the thing, if Alabama, if Alabama is able to play a clean game, that they'll be able to pull away comfortably because, I mean, this defense is still very good. The strength of the defense is obviously in the secondary. Now with Marcus May out, uh, that, that that certainly hurts them, but uh, Nick Washington, Marcel Harris, Marcel Harris had the scoop and score last week against FSU. Quincy Wilson is very good, and Chauncey Gardner has a lot of potential, but he's a freshman that just got he had to go in last week and just got caught up and, and missed some assignments and caused a touchdown. Duke Dawson is very good. Tease Tabor is one of the best in the league. So still, their secondary is excellent. The problem at linebacker is going to be is they're having to play a lot of these younger kids because of injuries. David Reese, who's a true freshman, Kyle Johnson, who is a redshirt freshman. These are good players, as is Voshan Joseph. Joseph was a guy that knocked, uh, that, that played so well at the goal line in the LSU game, knocking Danny Etling out of bounds. C.C. Jefferson was a big recruiting target for everybody a couple of years ago. He has played pretty well the defensive end. We mentioned Caleb Brantley, Corey Clark's done a pretty good job uh, as far as uh, at um, uh, nose guard. Uh, so uh, it's still a good defense, but it's still a. But I, I think Bama's going to attack those young linebackers, uh, and particularly when guys like Cha- Chauncey Gardner in the game, just because of their inexperience. Now. The, the, we've heard a lot about Lane Kiffin in the last several days. 
uh, speculation about him going to LSU. Now, Brett McMurphy of ESPN.com just tweeting uh, that Lane Kiffin, this doesn't surprise me, and, and Les Miles are candidates at Houston. Also, Kiffin's name has come up at Oregon. Do you uh, any worries about Alabama not uh, being focused because of Lane Kiffin's situation? No, no, I don't think so at all. Uh, I mean, they've just. Uh, I think at this point they know uh, where. It, I think they're uh, adjusted to what they want to do, uh, and I think the other thing is, particularly this close. I mean, I think these. A, I don't think these players paying attention to it, uh, and B, um, this is kind of what we've known all along, and probably just now actually getting out, but I think the the interesting thing is going to be is, again, Drew, if Kiffin does get one of these jobs, uh, which, frankly, I would be surprised if he gets the, if he got the Oregon job. I think Houston may be more realistic. Uh, would, would Saban insist, like he has before, that he stay through the playoffs? And I'm guessing he probably would. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, hearing some things uh, about Lane Kiffin where that he might not be there after Saturday, Brent. Could be yeah, very, I'm hearing the same thing. Very, so I, I very, very interesting uh, dynamic. Yeah. I'm, uh, that's why I wonder uh, what kind of game plan we will see out of Lane uh, in uh, performance. But uh, if they do stick uh, to the between-the-tackles running game uh, and, and I think try to mix it up, because I think sometimes identities are found even late in the season, and I think with yeah. this Alabama team, uh, they are a running team. Uh, they're best when they're going downhill, and when you have – uh, when you mix it up, when you rotate the three backs, Harris, Josh Jacobs, and then Bo Scarborough, and then you mix in Jalen Hurts, uh, you, I know Florida's got a proud defense. Uh, I still think Alabama can wear them down and then eventually hurt them vertically passing the football. Yeah, I would agree with that, uh, absolutely. And, again, it just depends on how clean of a game that they uh, are able to play here. So, uh, but, 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 again, in, in – McElwain is not going to Oregon. I can tell you that. Right. That's just basically Jimmy Sexton trying to get doing his job and trying to get more for his client. Uh, but that's just not going to happen. Uh, McElwain's done a good job here, and they've got a lot of recruiting they need to do to rebuild the offensive line. They've got to get a quarterback, which makes them, which makes it even more interesting, Drew, uh, that they are in the uh, in kind of the sweepstakes, shall we say for Jared Stidham mm -hmm. uh, from Baylor and, and also uh, Malik Zaire of Notre Dame. I, and, and actually right now, uh, Stidham would help them tremendously and would be able to fit in and be there for uh, a couple of years and settle their situation down at quarterback. And, and then you've already mentioned Felipe Franks. Uh, do they think that he's made enough progress where he can make a run at the job next year? Yeah, I think no. Did you have him? But you've also got Kyle Trask, who they really like, kid from Texas. They've also got a commitment from Jake Jake Allen, who a lot of people may not know yet, but they're pretty high on him too. So, but at the same time, Drew, uh, I think it probably tells you if you've got a proven quarterback uh, like like what we just mentioned instead of Menzaire, that that uh, they're pro they're willing to take a chance to bring those guys in. And and still the guy the the other ones we mentioned are still uh, I mean they're they're young enough where they will they can stay in the program and get a shot at it so uh, but but that that's the biggest thing they've got to be able to do they've got to fix their quarterback issue and then uh, finally as we are wrapping up the conversation uh, what kind of chance do you give Florida Saturday my prediction was thirty one 
uh, to 10, uh, Alabama. What, what kind of uh, – uh, do you think the Gators can keep it close? I think they can for I – think, I think you can go in, in halftime and this thing be 10 to 3 or 10 to 6 or something like that. But the truth of the matter is they just don't have the – um, uh, the, the Delft at this point to be able to stay with Alabama. Um, and again, I go back to last year because if you can, uh, it, it, as bad as that Gator team was last year, this year is a better football team than, than it was last year, even though it, has, it hasn't shown up against Florida State and Arkansas. So I think that's very possible. I mean, that, that they still need to get some short fields. Uh, by Alabama being able to turn the ball over. But what's going to be very interesting is, uh, Drew, if, if Bama's able to come out and, and have the same uh, mentality and the same scheme that they had in the second half against Auburn, and they were able to get ahead in this game very quickly, uh, I, could, I could also see it being over at halftime because Bama would dictate the tempo in this game but don't think for, for, for a minute that Florida will, will not rise up and I think play very hard and, and certainly come up with um, maybe more creativity. Doug Nussmeyer, this won't surprise you at all, has been heavily criticized down here for his predictability that he had against, against Florida State, that they've got their probably first dozen plays scripted, and as soon as they go off script, that they they just get very pedestrian in what they're trying to do because of their quarterback and offensive line issues. Uh, will they do something different? This one's going to be interesting. But so yes, I, I I think they can keep it close. But but I pick thirty to nine because I I think they'll be good enough to get about three field goals before Bama takes over the game. And then finally, uh, Brent, uh, we know you cover the ACC very closely. Does Virginia Tech have a chance against Clemson? Uh, I, I think that I think at this. I'm going to say no at this point because I think uh, that uh, Debo Sweeney knows that this this team has got to start playing better. I, I mean, obviously, in losing to Pitt, uh, that they played much better last week against just a absolutely overwhelmed South Carolina team. But what you're seeing with Clemson. Uh, and Bama fans need to be aware of this, uh, particularly if they play them in the playoffs in the first game, is the fact that Clemson, uh, their running game, uh, and you said this well, teams develop their identity late in the season. That's what happened with their running game. Wayne Gallman has really picked this up uh, in over the last two or three weeks. They're running the ball much better than they were. It's been a difficult season for Clemson, but they've been battle-tested all along. But, but I think I've said before that I absolutely love Justin Fuente, what he's done with Virginia Tech. This is also some credit, uh, I think, to the, uh, to, to the previous regime with Frank Beamer and what he did. And speaking of running back, Sam Rogers at Virginia Tech, they've got to be able to, uh, to cover him too. But I think Clemson wins. Uh, but but this, this could be a pretty high-scoring affair, obviously being in Orlando. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And then after this weekend, Brent, uh, who do you expect the Final Four to be? Uh, if if we if we have chalk, um, I think I think we'll have uh, Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, and and obviously the fourth one is going to put the committee and make them work a good bit. Uh, but uh, at this point, I think if Washington wins. 
they're probably in. Uh, but again, the committee may look at their non-conference schedule and say that's just not enough and end up putting Michigan and or Penn State uh, in there. So it, it, it's hard to say what this committee is going to do, but they're going to be challenged. And I hope there I frankly, Drew, hope there's enough chaos in this thing to where the, the, they're going to start looking at we need to go to eight so we can straighten this out. Very interesting take, Brent, no doubt about it. We always appreciate the conversation. I'll let everybody know where they can read your stuff and, of course, your Twitter feed, sir. Uh, at Brent Beard, B-E-A-I-R-D, uh, Gator Bait Magazine, First Coast News. Talk. And that was my conversation today with Brent Beard uh, as we took a close look at the Florida Gators. And, uh, Thomas, it's a very banged-up football team. And uh, I think Alabama uh, – They, I expect Florida to, to play with Alabama for about a half, but – I just don't see if, as long as the Tide executes and plays even a semi-clean game, Tide doesn't uh, win their 26th SEC title and march on undefeated into the playoff. But, uh, uh, again, and I think that's what uh, will happen uh, is, uh, is, uh, is the Crimson Tide, is, I think, has a, a, uh, a, a distinct advantage on both sides of the line of scrimmage. Uh, you know, this Florida Gator team, they're not healthy on the D-line. The O-line has been about average. I still don't see how they're going to run the football against Alabama. And then Austin Appleby, while being a good athlete and uh, being a pretty decent deep ball thrower, they just don't have the weapons overall, I think, to scare the Crimson Tide. Uh, and I said 31-10. to 10, I think Florida will find a way uh, to score a touchdown, uh, maybe even on a short field if Alabama turns the ball over. Uh, but I just think overall – uh, they are going uh, to have a hard time scoring uh, against this Crimson Tide defense. And now we're going to go back to the Sun Belt 10's hotline. Uh, this has been his, uh, it was his first appearance on BAMS in a while, uh, but he has the longest-running radio program in the city of Tuscaloosa, and that is the game, WDGM. And, that, and he is the one and only host of that. Also does a lot of podcasting uh, for SEC country, uh, the AJC's SEC country, Alabama, with uh, Mark Burnett and Chris Kirchner, two other friends of this show. Uh, but it's always great to have Ryan Fowler back on with us. Ryan, uh, good evening. Uh, how are you tonight? Hey, I'm doing very well and looking forward to talking with you guys as we prepare for the night meeting between the Crimson Side and the Gators over in the ATL. Well, actually, I think I guess yeah, it's the eighth meeting in the last night overall. <laughs> right. Birmingham. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a uh, quite a series, and Alabama has controlled it lately. Uh, since uh, that uh, rematch in 2009, uh, they have handled the Gators. And I know you and I both are admirers of Jim McElwain, and I've already stated earlier in this program, uh, I know he's denied those rumors, but if I were him, because I don't think Florida and the Gator Nation has appreciated the job that he's done uh, almost with one hand tied behind his back with some things he can't control – uh, I think he should try to look into the opportunity to go to the Oregon Ducks and kind of get himself re-cranked there. But still, a very fine job by Coach McElwain uh, getting back uh, to the SEC championship game despite all these injuries. And uh, I think they have a puncher's chance against Alabama. But, Ryan, overall, uh, this team, as long as they're focused and play clean, uh, this, I don't think they'll quite cover the 24-point number. But I, I like Alabama as a significant favorite uh, going, uh, even as this week is unfolded, uh, going into Saturday afternoon. 
Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I may be a little bit disagreement uh, there. I, I think Alabama will cover the spread because I don't think – Oh, wow. Point. Uh, I, I just look at this offensive line for the Florida Gators, and I, I, you and I have talked multiple, multiple times. You've got to have a Alabama 2012 offensive line to be able to beat this Crimson Tide. Now, you got to start there. you got to have an offensive line that is as good as that 2012 Alabama offensive line. Florida's not even close. I mean, I mean, they've got a below average offensive line. This front seven is going to absolutely whip them all over that field uh, inside that Georgia Dome. I look at Coach Mack, and let's start there. I know there was a lot of questions there as far as Let's start with, you know, Jim McElwain. He's the first coach in SEC history to take his team in the first two years uh, at a program to the SEC championship game. It's never been done in the 25-year history of, of this until Coach Mack was able to do it. So, big credit to him. You guys know that I'm a huge fan of Coach Mack. I got a chance to know him while he was here in Tuscaloosa, and uh, that continued at Colorado State. And, and, and when I can get him, I know he's in the SEC – uh, I like to feature him here on my program here in Tuscaloosa. So, But I don't want him to go to Florida because I'm selfish, and here's why. At some point, when Nick Saban decides to give it up and go to Lake Burton in North Georgia, I'd love for Coach Mack to return to the University of Alabama. But I believe if, if he did listen to that Oregon offer and ends up in Eugene, that I think you could probably cancel out the trip to Tuscaloosa. They're from there. Uh, and I say from there, uh, he went to Eastern Washington. I don't even know if anybody knows this, but you know who his college roommate was at, at Eastern Washington? I, I really Cowherd. don't. Who was it? Colin wow, it's very interesting. A little nugget there for you. All right, so um, so they're, they're from that part. I mean, actually, he's from Montana. But uh, when you look back at, you know, that's their part of the country. So – if the Florida Gator fans, and my understanding is they're they're a little frustrated. They're they're accustomed to scoring a lot of points, and you know he's still trying to build that up. I mean, I don't think people realize because he, sometimes when you have success, Galusa, we're a bunch of spoiled, rotten little brats, okay? And I'm including myself in that conversation. Uh, but when you take the team first to Atlanta, then that expectation is there. They were able to get back there. But I think they're wanting to see more offensive production, you know, and you, you got to be able to take care of Florida State. So they don't appreciate Coach Mack. I mean, I, I from just judging by the people that I feature here on my show, they don't appreciate it. And I, I wish they would. But when you look at, at what he's been able to do, I, I think he'll take a lot to get him away from Gainesville. But you got to remember, there's a guy out there that owns Nike that's the big Oregon uh, booster. And Bill Knight. I would imagine you guys could probably look this up, but I, I got to imagine that he's got to be getting up in his 60s, May, maybe mm-hmm. even a little bit off. He wants to buy a championship. That's what it, I mean, that's what he's looking for, right? I mean, that's, that's what he's trying to do. And, uh, you know, Max, one of those hot commodities, and I think he could do a lot of wonders there uh, in the Pac-12. I hope he stays in the SEC because – Right now, I'm disappointed in the coaches in this league. I think we're drifting away, guys. I mean, I go back five or six years ago, look at the quality coaches and look where it is now. I think Mac's the second-best coach in the SEC, and I don't want to see him going anywhere. But, you know, if Oregon calls me and uh, Florida's not very appreciative, I, I think you can read between the lines. So, I don't think he will, but who knows? 
Well, Tom, I will say this. Thomas, our outstanding producer, he has, t- he has informed me Phil Knight is 78. Woo! Wow. See, I mean, he even <laughs> fools you a little bit. I mean, so you know he's wanting to – so amp that up a little bit. I mean, you know he's wanting to win a, a title, and they've got all the facilities. They've got everything that you want there. Uh, they're just missing that big-time coach. Yeah, they really are. And, and speaking of coaches – uh, the elephant in the room, so to speak, is Lane Kiffin and his future. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt that everyone realizes uh, year three, and I think everyone was surprised in a way. Uh, he almost left after year one uh, because of being a wanted guy, almost went to the NFL. but uh, And then people, many people thought he would leave after year two and helping Alabama win a national championship and, an S- and a second straight SEC title. But I think uh, nobody expected Lane Kiffin to be here past year three because of more than likely uh, opportunities that he would uh, present himself if, if Alabama continued to win. That's been the case. Now you see Lane Kiffin. He is being mentioned for that Oregon job, but he seems to be more heavily in the mix at Houston uh, for, the, for a head coaching opportunity, which I think would be a good fit. But now you're hearing about LSU and Ed Ogeron his old friend who he hired at Tennessee and Southern Cal now wants to hire Lane Kiffin at LSU. Ryan, I know you have your ear to the ground as well as anyone in Tuscaloosa. Your thoughts on Lane Kiffin and uh, his future with Alabama? Well, I've said it for probably a month, month and a half. Now, the buzz here is is something I'm sure that we'll get into, but I've said for a month, month and a half that he – I didn't think, in my opinion, you got to remember, underline my opinion, I didn't think that he'd be back for year number four. I just thought, you know, you, you go back to uh, Michigan State in Dallas in the Cotton Bowl. Uh, at that point, I didn't know if he'd be back for year number three. And I was sitting in a room uh, interviewing Coach Kiffin, and this was on record, and he, I asked him point blank. I said, will you be back in Tuscaloosa next year? And he said, I'd love to be back. And so he ended up coming back. And uh, I think it's nothing wrong, of course. You know, I think it's it's all times, you know, he came here as a as a rehab project. Saban gave him a chance. And, uh, you know, I think he's maximized that opportunity of, of being a, uh, an offensive coordinator. I mean, you look at remarkable job that he's been able to accomplish. I mean, I think we've got to start there. I mean, well, what a what a job, you know, to uh, to possibly be in a in a situation to win three SEC titles in a row, and then possibly two national titles in a row. I mean, what else can you can, more can you do? Uh, but I I don't know. The buzz here locally is a lot stronger this week than it has been in any of the previous weeks. I mean, uh, I, I've heard a lot of extremes. You know, I had Brett McMurphy on today. And we talked about the Houston job that he reported earlier on ESPN as far as, you know, being a, one of the candidates that they're considering. And we all know about LSU. The people that I'm talking to down there really believe, you know, that he's, he's coming to Baton Rouge if he doesn't get a head coaching job. And, uh, you know, you've also got to go back and take into consideration there's not an extended contract past January. So, there, there's a lot of buzz here in Tuscaloosa that, you know, he could be uh, going there sooner rather than later. Uh, I, I thought it was pretty cool tonight on the Nick Saban show when uh, Cecil Hurd asked him about, you know, potential coaching moves. 
and Coach Saban went into an explanation and said, you know, when you know, looking at assistant coaches, when they become a distraction or when it takes away, when their priority is not with this team, that's when we, you know, we, we tell somebody to go on. And he said, up until this point, that hasn't happened. But I did, I don't know, just the way he said it was, uh, I don't know, I mean, just, just sort of made me think about something and just adding everything together. But I, I don't know, uh, it's just my opinion. Uh, I think we're watching, you know, the final month uh, if not the final few days of the Lane Kiffin tenure. I think you're correct. And, again, I would not be surprised if it ended up being uh, even after the SC championship game because I know the narrative is, well, you know, Kirby Smart and Coach Mack stayed through the uh, journey. And even uh, when he asked Doug Nussmeyer to uh, look for another job, he stayed through the 2012 title. But at the same time, Lane Kiffin is different. He's a more high-profile guy. Uh, and quite frankly, what I've what I've described it on Twitter is a circus around Lane Kiffin. It is. I think it would minimize distractions. And the one thing that you have other than in these other scenarios is his replacement, in my opinion, is already on the staff, Ryan, and that is Steve Sarkeesian. Well, and, and I don't disagree with you, but I think there's more than just Sark as an option. I mean, I really do. I mean, I I I do think that Sark is is probably your number one option. But I, I, you got to always look at Nick Saban. Nick Saban is always three steps ahead of everybody else. I mean, when we think that we've got the scoop or we've got the story, he's always a step ahead. And I, I do think that Sark would be a big, strong possibility. But why don't we go back to the summer here for just a couple of minutes? Brent Key was brought in to help with that offensive line. But I think it was also ability that if something did hit the fence, it'd be very simple to move Mario Cristobal back to the complete offensive line and Brett Key. Because you got to go back to Central Florida, pretty solid there, if I'm not mistaken, uh, with with what he was able to do. Was he not? Was he the offensive coordinator down there? I think he was, wasn't he? Yeah, he Key. was. Yeah. Yes. So I think that's an option. I think. Uh, I'm trying to think of his first name, but Loxley, the offensive coordinator, the Mike Loxley. There. Yep. Mike. Okay. He was. So there, there's you, there's you an option there. So when Nick Saban never gets caught from behind, and I'll say this: no. if Lane Kiffin departs Sunday or the Sunday in January or whenever, uh, Nick Saban's going to have a plan in place. I mean, I, I, I've just I've covered him too long. I mean, this guy is always a step ahead of everybody else. So uh, regardless if he decides to leave or if, if if he decides to stay, the man in charge will probably make the, the final decision. So, uh, but I think that, I, I mean, w- would you not agree that there's, there, there's several options? I, I don't think you're just, Sark's a great offensive coordinator. And what I've been told from some people that I've spoke to, because I've, I've heard what you guys have heard the last couple of days. And uh, I followed up with a, a source of mine out at USC, just to see the similarities between Lane Kiffin and Sark. And I have been told offensive philosophy, you wouldn't even be able to tell who was on the sidelines with with calling the plays. That it would be, I mean, literally, you'd have to look down and go, oh, okay, yeah. Because their offensive philosophy is, is so similar. So, 
I have followed up on that just to, you know, to stay ahead of the curve, trying to take the Nick Saban approach and, and trying to stay a step ahead. So that's one of the things that I think that, you know, when, when, you, when you start looking, there, there's a lot of options. There's a lot of options, a lot of options. And uh, it's one that I know all of us as media guys is going to keep us up uh, many, many hours trying to work the telephones and see exactly if we can get the scoop. Absolutely. And it should be very interesting uh, to see how it all plays out because my whole take on the reason Lane Kiffin uh, might be departing after the game is kind of just, uh, and you uh, it gave me even more reason to think it's possible with what you said Nick Saban had to say uh, with, first of all, Cecil asking the question and then the way Nick Saban answered it. Because, you know, Coach Saban wants to minimize distractions. And to me, if Lane Kiffin goes ahead and moves on and you give Steve Sarkeesian a month to prepare for the college football playoff, yeah, there'll be some questions about the change and Sark taking over, but it will minimize distractions, I think, a lot more uh, if, uh, with, uh, if, if Lane Kiffin is already gone and you already know what he's going to do. You've got you to gotta wonder at what point does he become a detriment to, you know, let, let's just say, because, I mean, think about it. Okay, Coach O gets the job last Saturday. This five days right here has been a, a pretty lengthy five days when you talk about recruiting and, you know, the buzz and, you know, putting out the fires. I mean, there's been – guys, I'm telling you, it, it has been nonstop here in Tuscaloosa with the buzz. And generally where mm. there's smoke, there there's fire. So I, I think now would, would be the time that you would want to – you know, I mean, if – at any point you see that this is going to happen, you know, I don't know if now's as good a time as any because you're fighting for a national title, but I think it would be a, an opportunity that you could you could make a, you know, pretty decent transition because you players will go off for, you know, probably a week and a half, two weeks uh, and, and, and get ready for finals, and they won't, you know, get back on the practice field for probably, I would say, right around the middle of December, is my guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, and, and again, uh, Lane's done a great job. I, I want to clarify that his on the field performance, uh, while some of the play calling has been maddening at times, you have to go by production and results. Uh, he's had three different starting quarterbacks. He's trying to help this team win uh, three straight SEC titles and two straight national championships. Uh, he's done yeoman's work. It has. There has been some issues off the field, and he hasn't done a lot in recruiting, uh, really. But again, he he still has, you know, somewhat rehabbed himself and put himself back in the spotlight. He's going to have some opportunities. Personally, I think Houston would be a good landing spot for him and give him another head coaching chance. But we'll see if that works out. But regardless, if he takes the opportunity at LSU, uh, Alabama will be fine. Because as you talked about, Ryan, I think that's the best point. Uh, Nick Saban always prepared. I always felt like Steve Sarkeesian was brought in for a reason. And, uh, and, I, and again, great uh, insight into uh, Sark at USC. I've been telling some people, they ask about, you know, how they are as play cars. I said they're very similar, but I do think Sark uh, is a little bit more tailback oriented. But he, he'll also keep the quarterback runs because he developed Jake Locker into a first-round pick at quarterback. And also Keith Price was a record setter there. And what people can't forget is when Sark was at Washington, he brought Tosh Lapoy there with him, uh, and that uh, Sark, he, he took over a program that was coming off an 0-12 year, 
and uh, rebuilt them into a competitive Pac-12 program that Chris Peterson has been able to kind of uh, build on that and take it to the next level once Sark went to Southern Cal. Right, right. I mean, I mean, so, but you look at Sark. I mean, listen, as far as a developer of a quarterback talent, and I'm gonna say something, and it, it, it'll probably get twisted around, and it'll be that you know I've jumped completely off the cliff. I don't know how good it is with a quarterback. Now, hear me out now. People listen to the full what I'm about to say. I don't think, I don't know if he's that great, Lane Kiffin, as a quarterback developer. Okay? Right. I think Lane Kiffin does a great job with recognizing the strengths and the weaknesses of a player and calling Mm -hmm. plays based on those strengths and weaknesses. But working on mechanics, I've been told by two or three different people that I think I, tr- I know I trust, that he doesn't really enjoy that side of the game. Does that make any sense? Am I, am I making any sense with that? I mean, that he, he's yeah, not a I know. Yeah, I, I, I understand what you're talking about. You're, you're talking about as far as with individual player development, not great, but he's really good at putting together an offensive plan, scheming, and play calling. And uh, and really and and getting and, and and setting up matchups and putting players in position to succeed, just maybe not as good with the player development part. Yeah, and and that's I guess that's what I'm saying is is that, uh, and I don't know if he enjoys that, but he is right. I would say probably the best. I mean, I, I think he's right there because he could expose, and and we had Shane Matthews today on our show. And you should have heard him explaining why the jet sweeps are used. I mean, I mean, yeah, we know why they're used, but right. I mean, he went into a quarterback of eye control and why defensive linemen follow those lateral, you know, uh, horizontal plays rather than the vertical. He said, you know, you'll do them knowing that they won't be successful, but just to be able to, to when you do fake it that you get that minute of hesitation. Well, he went into explaining it, and, and I thought it was great, but he is a brilliant play caller. I don't know if he's a brilliant quarterback developer. I, I know that everybody's going to say, well, he did it with, with Blake Sims. Uh, he did it with, with Jacob Coker. But I, I go back to ask you a question, and, and, and this is simply a question. It's not a comment. Has Lane Kiffin ever put a big-time quarterback in the league? Not, not really. I mean, he did get Jonathan Crompton drafted, but I think that was more identifying what Crompton was good at, identifying what Blake was good at, and identifying what Coker was, and building an offense around their skills and uh, and take and, and putting them in in uh, in, uh, in position to be productive. I don't know if they improved their uh, fundamentals all that much, but he was able to put them in systems where they could put up numbers. Yeah. And so I guess that's, you know, that's my, uh, you know, comment. When I mean, Matt Liner certainly, I mean, he wasn't that great. But he didn't, uh, but he didn't succeed long-term in the NFL, though. No. He, man, well, he puts him in a position to get drafted, but that, that, that's right. all about, you know, you know Mark, it's still Mark the Sanchez same narrative. Was, was Mark Sanchez? Uh, I think that was his exactly. guy, was it not? Uh, yeah, exactly. You've they, already I mentioned mean, Jonathan Crompton. The only one, the only one that, that's had success in the NFL is Carson Palmer. Yeah, 
Okay. And who won the Heisman. So, I'm, I mean, you know, but still, it just, I still think he's an outstanding coach. I just don't think he's a quote-unquote QB whisperer, so to speak. I think he's yeah, more but, of a schemer. But I, I think, I, but I think Sark is. I, I, yeah, I and that, that's a good point. I think Sark is. When you look back at the quarterback, he's developed. Uh, he's worked for some pretty pretty big coaches in, in his coaching career. And then to wrap it up with you, Ryan, uh, we thank you for your time tonight on BAMS. This, as this program is winding down, we're about to hear from Avery Johnson to close it out. But your prediction, I know uh, you said you think they'll cover the number. What is it? What is your score? I know you've had a lot of that interaction on your radio show, but what is Ryan Fowler's score prediction? You know, I, I look at thirty-one to zero is where I'm going to stick wow. to. I, I think they'll, I think they'll get a shutout. I, I just, I'm looking forward to going over and covering the game. Uh, Max always got a couple of things up his sleeves, but uh, just from everything I'm hearing at practice, Alabama's got a few sle- things up their sleeve as well. Uh, I think Alabama will win thirty-one to nothing. I, I think they'll win the twenty-six SEC title. And uh, you know, can can I work in a little iron bow jab if you don't mind? Sure, go ahead. How about them Auburn Tigers? How how are you guys doing today? You guys doing okay? I mean, that that that, that beat down last Saturday, but you know the good feeling. I'm I'm feeling the karma. The better part of beating uh, those guys is now they got to line up on Saturday morning. They got to eat that breakfast, then they got to go find the Alabama Shaker. Yes, sir. <laughs> well, Auburn Tigers gonna have to be pulling for the Crimson Tide on Saturday. You guys have a great day. Thank you again. Thank you, Ryan. I always appreciate it. That's Ryan Fowler. And uh, as I said just uh, a second ago, uh, I was able to cover the Crimson Tide 30-point win, 76-46, over the Charleston Southern Cougars and was able to get some post-game reaction from Riley Norris, uh, also uh, Avery Johnson, Jr., who both came off the bench to be very productive, uh, and uh, Coach Avery Johnson. Following Alabama's win, they will be now taking – they're four and two. They will be on the road in Austin, Texas, this Friday night, 8:30 p.m. on ESPNU, taking on the Texas Longhorns. But this is about nine minutes of post-game reaction from Avery Johnson. Tonight was one of our uh, better first halves of the year. A lot of points of emphasis that we came into the game talking about in practice and. Uh, in our shoot-around, we executed in those areas. Fortunately, they missed some shots. Uh, they got some decent looks, but for the most part, we had a lot of closed window situations where they didn't have great looks at the basket, did a nice job in transition. We didn't get in the bonus early in the game like we normally do. So we had a lot of good patterns of uh, and consistent patterns of execution on both ends of the floor, and I'm proud of the way the guys responded um, after the way we played on this last road trip and uh, the way we practiced two days ago. They definitely turned it around tonight. Okay, question for Clark. Yeah, Riley, it's better on this team. Uh, what does it mean to see Braxton Key have two great games so far for the um, It means a lot. Um, we know that Braxton's capable of doing that night in, night out. Uh, we saw it every day in practice leading up to the season and end season. So um, it helps us out tremendously. Um, we know that he can uh, go get it every night and play hard and uh, you know do what he does. This is for both players, but both you guys were the second unit tonight, uh, and they were both aggressive offensively. You guys scored over 40 points with the second group off the bench. Or is, 
that what you guys are, are, are looking to do is to try to make this team so deep and potent and uh, be able to uh, have 10 guys that can really score the ball? AJ, why don't you start? Uh, well, it's always a team effort. The second group just tries to come in and give like a spark. You know, the first group is a little tired. We just come in uh, and it relieves them and just, you know, not try to do anything, anything um, that's not part of the game plan. And then when they come back in and cheer for them, because we know we'll, we'll be back in um, soon after that. Yeah, like AJ said, it was a team effort tonight. And, um, yeah, the second unit uh, would come and just provide a little uh, spark, a little ignite a little spark, and, uh, you know, just kind of keep the intensity up. We know if we keep the intensity up when the first unit gets back in there, um, then we can uh, play a complete game. Questions? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Right, good question for Coach. Coach, just talking about the play of Bryson tonight, and how he kind of got you off to a great start with his early energy and everything. Yeah, got us off to a nice start. Um, you know, he's been a pretty good rhythm. He's confident. You know, he, he's he's playing like a, you know, a high level player. He's a guy that we can use at three, four. We can move him to two. He can pass, dribble, and shoot. Uh, you know, he shows you every day why we were, you know, after him so much since the first day I basically got here in terms of recruiting. Look at his body. I mean, that's kind of a next level type of a body, right? But um, you know, we just want him to continue to get better and grow and. And, uh, you know, year after year, uh, we just want to see him blossom, just like the rest of the guys on the team. Everybody's putting in the work. Um, but, you know, he's a kid that's got a nice package in terms of his size, his quickness, his hands, uh, playing, being able to play inside and out, recognize situations. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's really been gratifying watching his maturation. Right. They're going to tell the seven-minute mark of the second half. Uh, you guys didn't miss more than three consecutive shots. How important uh, or how impressed were you with the offensive consistency? Yeah, I liked it, you know, in terms of trying to find holes in the zone. Um, we still had some breakdowns here and there, but we got it on video. We can go and teach and coach it. Uh, these last two days, we basically, that's all we did was practice against zone defenses. So, and we saw some carryover in terms of the way we executed. We found guys when they were open. We made our open threes. Uh, we set good screens. So we will continue to improve in that area so that we can be more of a balanced team on offense. But uh, I thought Corbin's and Dejon and their energy early in the game, what Braxton did, really helped get us off to a great start. And as I alluded to earlier, we just didn't get in the bonus so early in the half, which, like in the second half, put us in the bind. You said you're trying to still figure out your identity, make, make a few switches. Do you feel any closer to, to doing that? Or? Well, and it's more of a rotation. So you saw early in the game it was a nine-man rotation. It's not like the other three guys can't play. It's just a tough job for tough people, right? So we got to make decisions and um, use other guys, you know, in terms of spot minutes. But you saw basically what we were after in terms of that nine-man rotation with uh, A.J. and Raleigh and Shannon and Dante, but you know those guys are gonna have to give us better, you know, pr consistent production. We had some situations where the ball was slipping through our hands, and we didn't make great two-hand catches, and so we, you know, we had five turnovers in the in the uh, first half and eight in the second half. So we still have areas to improve in. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about the performance of your bench tonight? How important it is to have that depth? Well, it's very, very important. If you look at the Ball State win. 
and the game tonight, our bench, you know, scoring a lot for us. They, they're getting after defensively. They allow us to change our defenses. You know, you, we showed you a couple of different presses tonight, which fortunately led to some turnovers, and we converted those turnovers. But you can do that when you have a solid nine-man rotation. You definitely just can't play 12. That should be the headlines for all these stories. He didn't play 12 in the meat and potatoes of the game, okay? Yeah. And, uh, Coach, a couple questions. Uh, Dante Hall's really seemed to pick it up since uh, starting in Las Vegas and tonight, uh, playing with a lot of energy and running the floor and, and being able to block shots and rebound outside of the zone. Kind of talk about his development and uh, what he's done. You you are really watching the game, rebounding out of his zone. I like that. That's good because that's something that we talk about. And we also talk about dirty rebounds. Our centers haven't been getting enough dirty rebounds and rebounding out of their zone, which is a pursuit situation. That's more of a willpower, a mindset, a want to. Uh, so, you know, that's just like a guy only tackling in his area, right? Sometimes the real good players tackle from sideline to sideline. So that that's what we're after. That's a great question. And then the second question, with two big road trips going up to Austin and Eugene, are you concerned about the free throw shooting? Free throw shooting is something that we need to improve upon. Um, we have to do a better job of getting in the right mindset at the free throw line, especially our really good free throw shooters. You know, that, that it's tough sometimes. If you've got a guy on your team that's historically been a below 50% free throw shooter, you know, you have to basically live and die with whatever happens. But you, when your guys that you're counting on to shoot 80% and above are struggling from the line, then that's, that's going to be problematic. So hopefully our guys will continue to get in the right mindset because I think a lot of it's right between the ears. It's just about getting comfortable of what I call the normal mind. You know, that mind that you have when nobody's in the gym and you make 100 in a row, transferring that mind to a game set, to a game situation. Go Alex and Mark and help you. Kind of along that same lines, how vital was it that, you know, uh, Braxton hit those first two threes, kind of got a little bit of momentum going, Confidence early, uh, you know. Obviously, it looks like you missed your next one, four or five in a row. But still, you know, how important were those first two? It was important because that's been a something that we said when teams zone us. We have to take and make our wide open threes. We had we missed so many wide open threes in Las Vegas. I mean, wide open. There weren't anybody between here and Vegas. So fortunately, you know, Braxton did a nice job of catching the ball and getting in the right position and squaring up to the basket. And, again, I just think for him, he's in the right mindset. He's, he, he's got a lot of confidence. He's hungry to get better. Uh, he see a lot of his other friends around the country that, that he played against on both the AAU circuit and high school circuit, what they're doing. That's just normal. But, um, you know, he, he's continue, going to continue to grow, and we want to help him really maximize his potential, and he's just scratching the surface right now. Mark? I just want to ask uh, Nick King, being in the start lineup, how, how does he progress uh, throughout last year and also up to now? Well, you know, Nick, this is only, you know, a sixth basketball game in a year and a half almost, so he's still trying to find a rhythm. He's not there yet. He was dealing with, you know, he got a knee and the thigh a little bit uh, yesterday at the end of practice. So, you know, just trying to make sure that he's healthy, 
And, um, you know, once he gets healthy 100%, we think you'll see his production uh, increase. Thanks, Coach. Okay, thanks. And that was Avery Johnson uh, following the uh, outstanding win over Charleston Southern. 76-46, led in scoring by Braxton Key with 16. 11 for Avery Jr. off the bench, and then 10 for Armand Davis off the bench as well. Uh, as we wrap up this edition of BAMS Radio, I wanted to give you a couple of quick updates today. There's been two state championship games decided in the Super 7. Of course, Hoover won last night in 7A over, unfortunately, our own Thomas Watts uh, alma mater. Uh, they had a long, I think, 22-game win streak for McGill Tulin finally snapped. Drew, it didn't uh, happen. I just woke up and put on pants yesterday, and the rest of the day is a blur. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a 17-7 Hoover win, but still a great run for McGill throughout the year uh, as the number one team in the state in 7A, and then Earlier this uh, morning or at, uh, this afternoon uh, at, at 11 o'clock, Piedmont repeated in 3A, 22-12 over Ronnie Cottrell, Shane Wazden, and Mobile Christian. Earlier this afternoon, uh, Maplesville continued to roll, winning their third straight 1A. I believe it was 40-12 to 12 over Pickens County. And right now we have a barn burner, late third quarter, Beauregard, the Hornets, uh, up on uh, uh, Coach Cheatham and Winona High School, the alma mater of one Sam Shade, uh, former Alabama strong safety, now the coach with the Sanford Bulldogs. It's 14 to 13. Uh, Beauregard just recently retook the lead. We're trailing at half, 13 to seven, but a very good football game in the uh, 5A final going on right now in uh, Jordan Hare Stadium in Auburn, Alabama, where uh, the uh, where the uh, state championships will be played. And tomorrow, the Madison Academy Mustangs go for their first 4A title after moving up from 3A, winning three uh, 3A titles in the last four years. Uh, and then we'll also have the 2A final, and then uh, the to, to close it out tomorrow night, 6A. But like we said, Alabama Crimson Tide basketball will be on at 8.30 p.m. for the Tide fans, who I'm sure are going to want to watch Avery's group to see if they can get a big road win over Shaka Smart and the Texas Longhorns, who have kind of been struggling. But it's been a great BAMS radio. We've gone over our limit a little bit tonight, but we wanted to bring you that audio from Avery Johnson. Great stuff from Ryan Fowler, William Redfish, Barger and we enjoyed it, Thomas. Uh, your uh, thoughts at the beginning of the show always do a great job in uh, producing our program. But we hope everyone enjoyed uh, this live edition of BAMS Radio. The podcast will be up, I'm, I'm sure, by the morning. Uh, and for those that may have missed it, but great stuff. And we hope everyone enjoyed it. Uh, Thomas, I'm going to let uh, you give your prediction really quick. I know you gave yours via the back chat, but let the listeners know what your prediction yeah. is for Saturday. 38 3. The Florida offense is just bad, and it's Alabama will wear the Florida defense out. Uh, so we're looking at a 26 SEC title. I have 31-10. Ryan Fowler had 31 nothing. William Barger also likes Alabama significantly in this contest. Uh, but the Crimson, and really over the number, but the Crimson Tide with the uh, big-time advantage going into this contest. Everyone have a great rest of your evening. Great two hours of BAMS radio tonight, two-plus hours. Uh, we look forward to speaking with you again next week as we kind of try to break down the college football playoff. Good night and roll tide.